Hello and thanks for streaming this episode from ACF Church. Our hope is that this word would encourage you to walk closer with God and with your local church. We hope you consider partnering in the work God's doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you'd like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can do so safely on our website at acfak.org or by texting the amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. to be at church today. Man, we're so glad to be with you. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And can we welcome everybody who's with us on Facebook Live? Let's welcome them this morning as well. We're glad that you are watching and that you're with us. We love you. And we're glad that you're part of our family. You guys, I'm so excited. We are in week two of our series, Who Needs Church? And I have the honor of introducing my friend, uh, Pastor Jonathan. He is a pastor out at Church on the Rock in uh, Wasilla. And this man has been a huge influence on my life. And he preached a sermon uh, speaking towards some of the things in Acts chapter 2 a few months ago. And when I heard it, I was just like, man, I would love to have you come share at our church. I had the honor of preaching at Church on the Rock last year. uh, Actually, on Impact Eagle River Sunday morning, I was out there serving uh, by preaching uh, when Pastor Jonathan was on a sabbatical. And so um, I'm just honored to have him here. We're honored to have you here. Uh, Jonathan has been a friend of mine uh, for quite some time now. If you've ever wondered, you know, who does Brian call when he has questions or is wrestling with things? Uh, Jonathan's one of those guys. And uh, you've been a huge influence in my life, so I'm grateful for him. And we are just honored to be able to hear from him today in this part of Acts. So could we just pray together? I want to pray for Jonathan, and we'll get into the text today. Jesus, thank you so much for for this man. Thanks that, uh, God, you have brought him here today, that you've placed a word on his heart. And, God, I just pray that we would be receptive to it. God, we thank you that you are at work far beyond the walls of our church or in Eagle River. God, in Alaska, you are at work, and, and your spirit is moving, God, in Wasilla and Palmer and across the state. And so, God, we just pray for continued work in Church on the Rock, that you would bless them today and this morning, uh, God, as they are uh, just serving people and sharing the gospel there. And we just pray today that, that we would be ready to hear from you, God. Uh, spirit, move in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Give Jonathan a hand, would you? It um, is an honor to be here with you guys. Um, uh, Wasilla Billies don't get out all the time, you know, so it's nice to move closer to the big city at least. Uh, I lived in Alaska 20-something years. Um, Most of that time was down in Homer, um, and I love our state. And I I just want to say this at the outset. I believe God's up to something unique in this season in the state of Alaska. And I don't say that lightly. I really believe there's something going on in terms of unity among churches. I believe there are unique things happening in our Alaskan bush villages. I just believe this is a unique season to be here at this time. And I'm truly honored to be here with all of you. Now, Brian doesn't think I know what's going on. I know that he just didn't want to touch Acts chapter 2 with a 10-foot pole. He's like, John will say yes, um, and I did, and so here we are. Last week, uh, Pastor Brian preached a message, and there were a lot of great takeaways. One of them was that um, uh, the building isn't the church, right? Um, you didn't come to church today. You gathered together with the church today, that you represent 
the church. But one of my biggest takeaways was actually this one. In the beginning of his message, he referenced when he goes out hunting. And his rifle at the end of hunting season has to be recalibrated. How many of you here last week? Oh, good. There are real Christians in the room. You were here. Okay. Um, like his rifle had to be recalibrated. And here's the reason he gave, literally verbatim, the reason he gave is because it gets banged against trees, shoved into the mud, and thrashed throughout the hunting season. And I thought, never loan your rifle to Brian. <laughs> so that was my other big takeaway from last week. Acts. We are digging in here. We're going to get going. We don't have a whole lot of time. We've got a lot of ground to cover because Acts chapter 2 is pivotal and critical in the mission of the church. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. It's been um, seven weeks since his tragic and untimely death. It's been seven weeks for the disciples since the crucifixion of Jesus. And to be honest, he had actually been trying to prepare them. This had been something that had been months and months in the making. But you know how Jesus is. You know, he'd been talking like he was preparing for something, or more specifically, he was preparing them for something. But he was always talking in these cloaked terms. He was using parables and allegories. And so for the disciples, it probably stood to be reasonable that maybe he's not really talking about what it sounds like he's talking about. But Jesus had attempted to be really clear with them about what was coming. And now he had actually started to, to scare them a little bit, especially when he said things like this. John 16, verses 6 and 7, Jesus speaking. It is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Imagine for a moment, for three, three and a half years, you've been physically hanging out with Jesus. Like, you, you've seen him walk on the water. You've seen the miracles take place. You've heard the words that were spoken with so much authority. I mean, like, you've been with Jesus. And he says to you, hey, this is going to be the best thing in the world for you. I'm going to abandon you. The, the disciples have to be thinking, listen, I know you think that's best, and we're just telling you it's a terrible idea. We kind of like having you around, physically present here with us. But Jesus is letting them know something better is coming. And they can't conceive of anything better that could possibly be coming than having Jesus physically present with them. But now, for them, it all seemed really, really clear. But it was confusing for a while. I mean, Jesus had been arrested, and then he had been crucified. And that hopeless feeling for three days as your Messiah, your rabbi, is in the ground. And it seems like all hope is lost. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We feel like they should have known, right? They should have known that he was going to be in the tomb for three days. Like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. Like Jesus had tried to tell them it's not the end of the story, but they are clearly afraid and hopeless. And then it happened. Like the resurrection from the dead. They hear word of it and they're like, mm, I don't know if that's, uh, can it be? Should we believe it? Did somebody actually steal his body? Or, or what? And then Jesus begins to appear to people. The resurrected from the dead, Jesus begins to appear to people. Over 500 People have seen him alive. And it's not like the old Jesus. This Jesus can actually walk through walls. It's like Jesus 2.0. Like this is the new and improved Jesus with the cape and the mask and everything. Like Jesus is a superhero now. Like he was great before, but he's got some powers going on now. And he's been resurrected from the dead. And they had to begin thinking as Jesus is hanging out with them for 40 days or so that he's going to stick around and, okay, you were right, Jesus. This is better. Like before you couldn't walk through walls, or at least we didn't think you could, but now you can walk through walls. We kind of like the new Jesus. But he's not going to stick around, is he? In fact, in Matthew and in Luke, uh, their accounts of the last conversation Jesus has with his disciples it goes something like this. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 
20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority. Can you say all? How much is that? That's a lot. All authority in heaven, and just so we're clear, and on earth has been given to me. And since I have all the authority, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Acts 1, verse 5 and verse 8, this is added. John baptized with water, Jesus speaking, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Not do my witnessing, you will actually become something different, not do different things. You will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, even in Eagle River. Okay, that part's not in there, but implied. And then Jesus, as you heard last week, starts levitating up off the ground. Weird. He starts, starts rising up off of the ground. He keeps rising up until he's so far gone that the disciples can barely see him. They're like looking at each other. Do you see the speck? I can still see him. I can't see him. I need glasses. Like, and they're staring up into the sky. And here's what we're told in the text, right, that, that they're standing there with their mouth open and their mind blown. And these two angelic beings show up and they say to them, close your mouth. You've got work to do. Like, why are you staring up into the heavens? This Jesus that you have seen depart is coming back in the same way you've seen him go. And you've got work to do. Let's get moving. Birthday parties. We just had my daughter Katie's um, eighth birthday party, which yesterday was the eighth. And I don't know, uh, you were probably robbed as a kid like I was, but apparently that is now called your golden birthday. You're supposed to do something different or more special. Uh, so, so she had her golden birthday yesterday, and it was a party. And, and I, want, I want you to understand something. Acts chapter 2, it's actually a birthday party. It's been less than two weeks since Jesus floated off into the sky, and now a feast is beginning for Israel. It's called the Feast of Pentecost. And the word Pentecost just means 50 Right, it's also called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. It's this harvest feast that they would have that was represented at the first of the harvest of the year. And they're getting ready to celebrate Pentecost. It would be 50 days after the Passover and the Day of Atonement. And here, all the way 50 days later. And the disciples are all gathered together. And they're gathered together in this upper room. And they're praying and they're fasting. And they're waiting for something. Jesus just said, I want you to wait, I want you to tarry, I want you to be in prayer and fasting. Something's coming that you've never experienced before. And then it happened. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. I, I grew up in Oklahoma. You can pray for me later. Uh, it, it, it's a good place to be from. Um, I grew up in Oklahoma, and then we had tornadoes that would come through in northeast Oklahoma, and I don't know if you've ever heard a tornado. It sounds like a freight train coming down the tracks. I, I imagine it's this sort of like <laughs> rushing wind that's coming into the room. Mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. That's weird. I mean, think about it for a moment. We're all just praying at the end of service. It happened in first service today. We were all praying, and this exact same thing happened. I know you haven't heard about it yet, but people are still freaked out. Imagine we're praying. You look up, and there's little pillars of fire over everyone's head. And, like, even the people that put in too much hairspray, they're not being lit up by it. Like, there's just these little pillars of fire resting over each and every person's head. And there's this wind just blowing through the room. I mean, it's just like thunderous wind blowing through 
the room. And this moment, this moment represents a foundation and a formation of a brand new thing. And that thing is called the church. Because it's not an address where we gather. I mean, you probably said it today. I've said it several times today already. Welcome to church. What I really should be saying is, welcome church. We don't invite people to go to church with us. We invite people to gather with the church with us. But this is that moment when that mysterious new thing is given birth to, and it's called the ecclesia, or the gathering, or the calling out, or the calling together. The church is born in this moment. This has become really clear to me um, for the first time when I visited a place called Caesarea Philippi. We were actually just there um, here a few months ago. I've got a couple of pictures of the particular location, and that's my mom and dad. They're actually here in this service uh, with us. And, and we were at Caesarea Philippi, and what's really interesting about Caesarea Philippi is there's a particular spot at Caesarea Philippi that was um, a temple of worship to the god Pan. And the god Pan was this, like, half-goat, half-human um, god that was pretty devious and had desires that could just never be fully satisfied, extremely promiscuous, and it was just it was a place of um, diabolical worship. But, but this particular cave that you see in the pictures was a spot um, known as the place where Hades resided. You would throw your sacrifices into this cave, and it was called the Gates of Hell. And this is the location where they believe that Jesus is actually um, communicating something to his disciples that if you grew up in church world like I did, you've probably heard referenced before. It's Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered, finally you got something right, Peter. (laughs) Just kidding, poor guy. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. It's a play on words. It means pebble or rock. You are Peter. And on this rock, Jesus referencing this foundational truth of who he is, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll tell you a secret about um, Caesarea Philippi and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell. Nobody's worshiping there anymore. Like it's shut down. It's a tourist attraction now. In fact, what probably happens there most often is people preach the gospel right there, referencing this story from the life of Christ with his disciples. But here's what's really interesting to me in the passage, because Jesus is really stating three things in particular. The first one is this, that he builds his church. Pastor Brian doesn't build his church. I don't build his church. You you don't build his church. He's the one who builds his church. That's his job, and I get to join him as he's building his church. But, But here's the other thing that really stands out to me. Because the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, represented the place where you would pacify the gods of death so that they wouldn't take you or oppress you and And Jesus makes this statement. He says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. Now, how many of you have ever been attacked by a gate? If you raised your hand, I would have said, you can get help for whatever's going on with you. It doesn't make sense, does it? Gates don't attack you. But I'd always sort of approached it in this way. Well, the gates of hell won't prevail against me. And then one day I was like, oh, yeah, gates don't attack people. Unless it's in a cartoon, right? Like, that doesn't happen. What Jesus is actually declaring is he's he's saying the gates of hell cannot withstand the onslaught of the church. That we are on the offense, not on the defense. What he's really declaring is that death won't have 
victory, that his church that he's building will crash through the gates of hell and rescue those who are dead back into eternal life with God. And here's what I really see. His church is not passive or defensive. It's aggressive and it's advancing. And Acts chapter 2 is the birth of that church. Now, there's three elements that I want to draw out of Acts chapter 2. And the first one is this element of the wind that blows into the room, this mighty rushing wind. And it's an unmistakable sign if you are one of the Jews who are there. In fact, this wind is the first way that the Spirit of God is described in the scriptures. It's all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. You've probably heard it before. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God, that word spirit right there, it's the word ruah. If you were um, Jewish, you would spit up phlegm when you said the last part of it. It literally means wind or breath. That would be the translation of spirit, wind or breath. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Or in Genesis chapter 2, Verse 7, when man is created, then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's that same word again. The man then became a living creature. Or in John chapter 3 verse 8, this is how Jesus will describe the spirit. The wind blows wherever it wants Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. You don't know what the Spirit of God's like? The Spirit of God's like wind. You don't know where it came from, and you don't know exactly where it's going. But but it's coming from somewhere, and it's going somewhere. But what you do know is you know it's present. You can feel the Spirit moving. I don't know if you've ever had that experience before where you sense that the spirit of the living God is like leading you somewhere, directing you somewhere. You don't know what it's all going to look like over there, but you're confident that you're hearing from the spirit of the living. Where did that come from and where are we going? It's mysterious in that way. And in this moment, if you're in that room in Acts chapter 2 and you've been praying and you've been waiting and you hear this thunderous roar of the wind and it blows into that room, something's going on. Their minds had to go back to these events and these moments. The other element that's in this passage is the element of the fire. The fire is an interesting touch that's added to the story. Like, I don't know about you, but I'd be a little freaked out if we all had tongues of fire floating over our heads. But, but I think God's actually communicating something really, really important to the people present in that room in that moment and to us in this room today. We just had a leadership party over at Church on a Rock, and we decided to go with an 80s theme. That's not why I have this jacket. I decided I was going um, to dress sort of like a combo of Flava Flav and Run DMC. <laughs> it was horrific, but so much fun. Uh, but, but I remember we're, we're all there, we're set up, the party's getting ready to go, and people are coming in, and my wife walked in. You know who Cindy Lauper is? When I say my wife walked in, I mean Cindy Lauper walked in. Like, and I had this throwback all the way to, oh, that is what your hair used to look like. like, like it was just like enough hairspray. You, know, you went through a couple of cans so you could get the elevation you needed um, out of the bangs. And it was just huge hair. And all of a sudden I was transported all the way back to like high school, and, which was just a couple of years ago. I think the disciples are having that experience in this moment when those pillars of fire show up. Their minds had to go all the way back to the Exodus account when they had been delivered from the grip of Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt. And God had supernaturally delivered them. And it took great faith to move out. And God was meeting them along the way. And he parted the seas and he covered them over Pharaoh's army. And now all of a sudden they're in the wilderness and God comes to them and he says, I want to set up my tent right here in the wilderness with all of you. He didn't ask him to build a temple of stone. 
In fact, later someone else will ask if they can build a temple of stone. What God asked of them was to build a tabernacle, a tent of meeting. And that tent was portable. You could pack it up and you could head off whenever God was on the move. And so that's what they would do. And this, this tabernacle is covered on the exterior in sacrificial skins. And it houses the presence of God. And what God wants them to know is he is with them. They're not alone. He's present there. And the way that you knew if God was home was a pillar of fire by night. And the smoke from that pillar, a cloud by day. In fact, this is hearkening all the way back to when Abram met God for the first time and God shows up as a smoking oven or fire pit. There's the flame and there's the smoke. And this is how Israel knew if God was present in the tabernacle as there was the pillar of fire there. And there had been a question in the Jewish mind uh, from the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, you just looked at it this past Easter and Good Friday, right? In, in this moment when Jesus is crucified and he breathes his last and the sky turns black as night and there is an earthquake that takes place because we don't know anything about earthquakes around here. And, and like many things for us, in the temple something specific happens in this moment. Now at the cross, the Roman soldiers who are standing there, they look up and, and one of them says, surely this was the son of the living God. But back in the temple in Jerusalem, an event takes place that has startled the Jewish community, has unraveled, unraveled the Jewish community, and it's the tearing of the veil in the temple. There was this massive curtain, it would have been six to eight inches thick, uh, that went from the main area of worship and sacrifice all the way into the Holy of Holies. And only one person once a year could go into the Holy of Holies where God resided, the mercy seat was. And that person would go in and offer a sacrifice. And that was the high priest. He was the only person who could go in there. And if he went in without his own sin covered, dead. In fact, if someone just decided, I want to go in there, dead. Like in the past, God had gotten out of the Holy of Holies and gone into the camp of Israel and it had not ended well. Like thousands of people dead because the presence of God had moved through the camp and brought judgment. I can only imagine on this day when the earthquake happens and the veil is torn from the top all the way down to the bottom. Imagine you're the priest on duty that day and you've got to go to the high priest and you're like, I know you felt the earthquake too. I just want to say this in advance. It is not my fault, but God got out, and I don't know where he is. Like, this has not gone well before for Israel if, when God got out, right? But, but in this moment, I've always heard all my life it represented that we could go into the Holy of Holies, but what we're told in the scriptures is he doesn't live in there anymore, I think what it actually represents is that God isn't present there. And if you're a Jewish individual, where, where did God go? Like the curtain's torn. He, he got, because of course an eight-inch curtain can keep God in. On this day, on the day of Pentecost, when this group is gathered in the upper room and they're looking around, there's a little pillar of fire over the head of every single person in that room. I'll tell you exactly what they were thinking. Found him. Right? He's in you. He's in you, and 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 you. God doesn't live in temples made of stone, made of human hands. He lives in temples of flesh and bone. He has taken up residence. The spirit of the living God has taken up residence in you, mind blown. That's what the fire represents. God no longer dwells in temples made by human hands, but he dwells in human Hearts. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? I think in this moment, it's suddenly clear to the disciples why Jesus needed to go away. Because before um, God the man, Jesus, God the man could be with some of us, but God the Holy Spirit could be with us. All of us, all the time, everywhere. Jesus was right. This is better than having one man physically present with some of us. And this Holy Spirit is essential to the mission of the church and the mandate 
of Jesus, which brings me to, hello, my name is... In Christian circles, there's certainly differing approaches to how the Holy Spirit moves in our churches. And I'll get into some confession here in just a little bit. But here's what I would say. We can differ on how the Holy Spirit moves in our respective churches. But we cannot differ on if the Holy Spirit exists and who the Holy Spirit is. The scriptures actually make it abundantly clear and it is unavoidable, the person of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit throughout the scriptures. In fact, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God is revealed as what we refer to as a triune God. The Trinity, maybe you've heard that term before or maybe you just saw it in the Matrix, I don't know. But what it really means is God in three persons. One God, but represented in three distinct personages, which is a great mystery, and if you have questions about it, Pastor Brian will answer all of them for you. But here's what we do know. Here's how it's revealed in the scripture, starting all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the first part of verse 26. Listen to what God has to say. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, this plurality of the God Head, or in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, at the baptism of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit descended on him, Jesus, in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The son is in the water getting baptized, and, and the Holy Spirit's descending in bodily form like a dove. And the father is saying from heaven, this is my boy, and I'm pleased with him. Or in John 14, verses 25 and 26, Jesus speaking, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here's what I want you to know. The Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and Son, and yet an entirely separate entity or personage. We're told in the scriptures the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit communicates the heart of Jesus. It comforts us in our sorrow. It guards our hearts from evil. But the Holy Spirit is every bit as much God as the Father and the Son. Which brings me to haves and have-nots. This is my confession and my parents are here. They've heard me confess this before. But I grew up I'm ready for your shame. I grew up in Pentecostal charismatic circles. I know. I'm a recovering Pentecostal charismatic. And I want you to understand something. There's so much that I value about my upbringing. I'm guessing my upbringing is probably different than a lot of your upbringing. And I grew up in the South. And so um, maybe you've heard terms like, um, I, I, Brian told me I was supposed to stand out here when I was getting ready to get fired up. Like, this is the fired up spot on the subwoofers. Uh, uh, maybe you've heard terms like holy rollers, swinging from the chandeliers. I'm just telling you, those aren't exaggerations. That's just normal church for me growing up. Like, like I have vivid memories of people running and leaping over pews when they were moved by the Spirit. And I thought, man, people need the Holy Spirit in the Olympics. Like, like I mean, uh, accomplishing amazing. Now, we, we had this um, thing that we would do from time to time. It's called a Jericho March. Anybody know what a Jericho March is? Could I see that hand? Um, okay, I'm going to explain a Jericho march to you because you're going to be as confused as I was as a kid once I really started to think through these things. Um, but but uh, it was usually when that one song was played and, and then the spirit was really moving. There was that one guy who was just the older guy who got up and he was just fired up. He was ready to get going. And so he would start a Jericho march. He would start marching around the interior of the auditorium, the sanctuary. He'd start marching around. And then everybody would join him and we would all be in a line with our hands on each other's shoulders going like this. No, I'm just kidding. We didn't do that part. Like, like we'd march behind him. We'd sing the worship song. Now here's what struck me as odd. I was like, Jericho march. So whether the walls fall out or they fall in, we're toast either way. 
Like, can we stop at six laps? Let's not do seven laps, because that doesn't seem like a great idea, right? Like, but, but, but sort of there was this um, freedom, this ability, let's just move in the Spirit, whatever the Spirit does spontaneously in our service, that's what we're going to do, just let happen. And so there would often be multiple messages in tongues and interpretation in the service. And so for some of you, you're like, oh, that poor guy. And, and, but, but, but what it did do is it created a value in me for the move of the Holy Spirit. And at the same time, I've spent a lot of years trying to figure out what's actually from God and what's just of the flesh. Like, how does the Spirit move and work in our churches? But, but here's what we did. We, we referred to our churches um, as, maybe you've heard these terms before, full gospel, which sucks for you. Can I say sucks at HPS? Okay, good. Um, uh, I forgot to check before. Uh, because that means you're like probably three-quarter gospel. Like you should put a sign, ACF, half gospel church. Just the title alone sort of excludes a whole bunch of people. Now, I knew what we meant by it, but nobody else knew what we meant by it. Or how about this one? We're a spirit-filled church, which means like you're a spirit-tainted church. I don't know, like, what are the options? We're a spirit-filled church, we're a full gospel church. That means you're not a full gospel church, and you're not a spirit-filled church. Really, um, we should have just put on on the sign something along these lines. um, The Jesus likes us more than you, church, right? It actually communicated something about what we believed. And, And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know this, and it's really important. Every believer... Every person who has said yes to the call of Jesus as Lord in their life has the Holy Spirit. You hear me? I don't know what you grew up believing, but, but maybe you were told at some point that you don't have the Holy Spirit until you've performed this particular miraculous gift, and then you have the Holy Spirit. Maybe you've been practicing for years speaking in tongues, you know, like, should have bought my mama's Honda, should have bought my mama's Honda, should have bought my mama's Honda, right? Like, like that, that somehow meant you were now filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm just telling you, the scriptures do not say there is one particular gift that now you finally have the Holy Spirit. What the scriptures do explicitly say is the moment you place your trust and faith in the person of Jesus Christ, you have the Holy Spirit of the living God resident. Okay, maybe you don't believe me yet. The first service was like right in track with that. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. You ready? They're ready. In him, Jesus, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There aren't haves and have-nots when it comes to followers of Jesus. In that moment when you said yes to not Jesus is my best friend, but you said yes to the lordship of Jesus in your life and over your life, you received the Holy Spirit as the seal of your salvation. Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Are you picking up what he's throwing down? He's saying, if you've come into relationship with Jesus, you don't come from death to life spiritually without the Holy Spirit of the living God. The Holy Spirit is resident in you. We call this the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Spirit and every believer has it. But there's this other element. I, I refer to it as the infilling of the Holy Spirit, the ongoing work in the life of the believer. And I, I thought, how, how do I really describe this? And this is the way I've landed on. And since, you know, my son didn't come to this service, I can share it. We have a generation of what we've called boomerang kids. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you send them out into the world. It's not like a Frisbee. It's like a boomerang. Like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm going to make it. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. I'm coming home. And then they move back into your house. And all of a sudden, they're back in the house. And so here's what you do as a parent. You're like, okay, I love you. I want to bless you. I'm flesh and blood. I'm going to give you a room 
this is your room. You stay in your room, and we're going to give it the smallest room in the house. Like, this is your room. You live in that room. You can't put a hot pot in there, nothing. I want you to be as miserable as possible, and I want you to understand you're living in my house, right, and that's your room. And so you want to sort of set these boundaries and confines, and so they move into their room, but it's not long at all before they start moving into the other rooms, right? Like, why are your underwear on that? Is this your new workstation? Why is your Xbox plugged into my TV and now I can't hang out in my own living room? And all of a sudden they begin to take over every room in the house. I know you haven't had this issue, but I've heard that that's happened to some parents. Like, somebody, you're like can you bet? Eventually you're living in a room in your house is what's happening, right? Like eventually take over all the space and suddenly it's their home now. And, and I would um, say this um, on a positive side. That's what the Holy Spirit is actually intending to accomplish. Like the Holy Spirit showed up at the moment you said yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior over your life. But what he actually wants is he wants access to every room in the house. And we call this the infilling of the Holy Spirit. I actually believe it's an ongoing work in the life of the follower of Jesus. Listen to how it's described. Luke Chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus speaking, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? John 20, 21, and 22, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. He's with his disciples. Peter is there. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. And I'm just going to say that um, when Jesus, the Son of the living God, breathes on you, and he says, Receive the Holy Spirit, you probably do. Right? He's not like, Oh, misfire. Like when Jesus says, right, breath of God, wind of God, receive the Holy Spirit, my gut tells me it probably happened in that moment. But then we have Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit comes in power. And these same disciples are also gathered in that room and they're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Acts chapter 4 verse 8, Peter again, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he preaches a sermon that would get most pastors fired that Sunday, like, this is what you did, but God wants to forgive you, and full of the Holy Spirit, he preaches it. Acts 4, verse 31, Peter present again, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I believe this is an ongoing process in the life of the believer. This openness over and over and over again to the spirit of the living God. Would you fill up every room in the house? Would you take access? Would you take over every area of my life? And here's the problem. I don't know about you, but, but I'm constantly trying to take the rooms back over. Because I don't like how he moved the furniture. Here's what we're probably afraid of. We're probably afraid if we open up every room in our life to the spirit of the living God, we have this ongoing process, this invitation of filling me up, that he's going to make you do things you don't want to do. You know, like forgive them. Like lay your life down for your wife like Christ did for the church. We're afraid he's going to rearrange the rooms in ways that we're uncomfortable with, that we don't really like. And here's what I would say to you. Get over it. He will. And what you will discover is that what he has promised is absolutely true. It's better. The fruit, the reward, the peace all of those things that everyone is searching for through a thousand different avenues the spirit of the living God has for you if you would just invite him to fill up every room in the house. Which brings me to here comes the boom. I have a good friend I actually planted a church with in Homer, Alaska. Aaron Weiser, and Aaron grew up in the Philippines, and in the Philippines, you have um, 
access to all kinds of explosives. And he said, as a young boy, having access to all kinds of explosives was an amazing experience. Like, you can even get nuclear warheads for the 4th of July there. Like, that's not true. Uh, but you could get gunpowder in copious amounts. And so he and his brothers would um, make bamboo cannons. And, and he says, on one occasion, we had decided to go all out. We were going to launch a projectile the furthest distance we had ever launched the projectile. And so we packed it full of gunpowder. And, and then we stuck a projectile in the end. We just got the ratios wrong. He said he and his brothers are all holding on to it because it's going to have some kick to it, right? He and his brothers are all holding on to it. They light the fuse and then, boom, 10 billion bamboo splinters. Like the projectile drops to the ground, and he and his brothers are filled with bamboo shrapnel. He said, we were pulling toothpick-sized bamboo pieces out of our bodies for days afterwards. He's like, it was so painful, and we did it again the next week. <laughs> you just got to get those things right. I don't know about you. I love fireworks. Like, I really enjoy fireworks. And, uh, and so, but I think often, have you ever taken a firecracker and, and then you, you, know, you light it and you let it get as far down as you possibly can before you toss it, you know, away from your body? But the closer it is to your body when it blows up but not in your fingers is actually the thrill. And part of the thrill is actually watching the fuse and waiting for the explosion. And so I've, I've practiced this over the years lots and lots of times. Well, let's give it a try right now. You ready? Here we go. That was disappointing. You expect something to happen when the fuse gets lit. Here's what I would tell you. I, I believe there's a world out there that knows you show up here on Sundays. You gather together with the church on Sundays and Never mind, you come to get your fuse lit. And then we go out there and there's no powerful display of the glory. There's no boom that actually happens. And often we show up to get our fuse lit over and over and over again. And yet what you were created to do was to put on display the power of the living God to the world around you. You weren't created to just have your fuse lit over and over. You were created for the boom. Like you were created so that this world out here could see the display of the glory of the God through the power of the Holy Spirit at work in you and through you. And I actually believe your church is already doing it. Like you're on the right track, but Pastor Brian's right. The fence is going away. That, that time when we could sort of live in this middle ground, that time is coming to an end because God's up to something, not just in our state. He's up to something in the whole world, and he's inviting you to pick a side and get on the move because he's got something he wants to display through your life, and it will be through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, that invitation for the infilling of the Spirit of the living God. Listen to how it's described in Acts chapter 2. Verse 41, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. This is the church. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all, just like every Sunday here. 3,000 added to the church that day. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to sharing in meals and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place in a high school. It's not in there. And shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. That isn't what the church was supposed to look like just back in Acts chapter 2. That's actually what his church looks like where it emerges all over 
the world. And you can feel it. I know you can. You can feel it resonate with you. I want to be a part of that kind of community. And that kind of community only comes into existence through the infilling of the Spirit of God. An ongoing invitation by his sons and daughters to take over every room in the house. Not just all of me belongs to you. All I have belongs to you. And what would it look like if we began to live together in that way in this community? It would be added to our numbers daily by those who are stepping in. We're going to go into a time of worship. And and here's what I would say. For some here in, in this room, the Holy Spirit is just being, uh, is waiting to be invited to take control and salvation is available to you. The seal of the Holy Spirit is available to you simply by saying yes to the clarion call of Jesus as Lord, ruler, supreme controller, authority over your life. And for others in this room, the Holy Spirit is waiting to be invited. He wants all of you, and he wants to light you up so you could display his glory to those around you. Whichever group you're in, say yes. Say yes. And if you've never stepped into the waters of baptism, and maybe last week when the invitation came out, you were like white-knuckling the chair or your spouse's hand or whatever, like, I feel like I'm supposed to go, but I'm not going to do it. I'm an introvert. Get over it. Like, here's what baptism really is. Baptism doesn't save you, right? Baptism is an outward declaration of an inward transformation that's already taken place. But here's the power. It's saying yes in front of a whole bunch of other people. It's a public declaration that I picked aside. And there is something that happens in that moment that is so powerful in that act of obedience that even Jesus took that step. And we have everything you need. If you want to get baptized, I brought a whole bunch of Church on the Rock t-shirts today that you can wear. Just kidding. ACF shirts. They told me the water's 120. They're making tea with it afterwards. Like everything's set for you. And if that's you today and you want to say yes to the invitation of Jesus and you want to make that public declaration because you never have or you did somewhere back here and you just didn't know why, I would invite you as soon as we move into worship, anytime during worship, head straight out those doors. They've got everything you need and we're going to celebrate together here in a while in baptism, a public declaration of an internal transformation. Jesus, I just pray over this congregation, this local expression of your body, of your church, I would ask that your continued favor and blessing would rest on them. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to have your way in us. Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this place. And when we say in this place, we mean in us. And I would ask that you would take over. You wouldn't just take up residence you would take control of every area of my life. And may we display your glory for the whole Matsu to see. In Jesus' name.